Greetings, God's beloved. Thanks for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Reformation Lutheran Church. Our readings today come from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 15, and the Gospel of Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Pastor Matt Metavellis is our preacher. Thanks for listening, and God bless you. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, who touched me? He looked all around to see who'd done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people wailing and weeping loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. He put them all outside. And took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years of age. Mm -hmm. At this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Seated. That is uh, probably one of my favorite endings to a healing story. Um, Jesus is probably closer to your grandmother than you think, right? After he cures her, he says, make sure that she eats. Only a grandparent knows how to take care of someone. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So a couple weeks ago, I was watching TV like I try and do when I'm not busy writing or doing other stuff in my evenings, and I was watching America's Got Talent, which is a show I have come to enjoy, even though Howard Stern is not a judge anymore, have mercy on me. And uh, at the end of the show, they usually save their most inspirational stories for the end of the show. Uh, you probably have either seen her or watched it or watched it on the internet afterward. A young woman named Nightbird came on and shared that she had terminal cancer. Now the judges immediately said, oh, 
well, are, are you in treatment? Can it be cured? And she just smiled and said, no, it's pretty bad. And the, immediately they were full of sympathy. And she said, no, no. She was there to sing. She sang a song beautifully. And then afterwards said, you don't have to wait until life gets less hard to be happy. Now, she got the golden buzzer because her singing was great. But, but it was amazing to watch that because I don't think Americans truly understand the kind of freedom that that young woman had. And I, and I saw this and I went, you know, also have mercy on me. I also went, you know, what I really love is that she didn't mention God at all. <laughs> she just talked about her, how she's overcoming this. She spoke about her illness with truth. As a hospice chaplain, that's what I'm looking for. A lot of people are always kind of like reading me their religious credentials, and I really don't care about those. I care, how are you doing? And I met a few patients who were like her, that in the midst of terminal illness, they're able to be free like that. Just saying, I had a patient very much like that who passed this weekend. And to see that kind of freedom was so inspiring to me. These patients are the ones who have helped me in facing my own death, who just say, this is what I'm facing, this is what I'm doing, and this is what living truly means to me. People like that have a way of making you listen. But my judgment about her was wrong. Turns out she's a graduate of Liberty University and is a very profound Christian. What is amazing about her is that she knows exactly where her freedom comes from. So I am going to read not my words, but her words. After the doctor told me I was dying, and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, I chased a miracle in California, and 16 weeks later... I got it. The cancer was gone, but when my brain caught up with it all, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused a physical head trauma, and my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic. I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. And by the way, I hear these things from patients all the time. But one thing I know for sure is this. I can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I've called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I've told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. 
Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise, sunset. Call me bitter if you want to. That's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God, for I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale, laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me on the grout. I'm sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread he promised to bake fresh for me each morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means, what is it? (laughs) That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? What is it? What is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees, in my mother's crooked hands, in the blanket my friend left for me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but I will repeat it until I do. So call me lost, call me cursed, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light and listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is in there even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God, and it's because they won't look low enough. And it's true. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. She knew what it cost. God renews us from the ground. It's from the bottom up. So renewal is not a matter of hitting your groove spiritually or Lord have mercy on me reading the right books. Trust me, if anyone's tried, it's me. It's not about being a good church citizen. And it's not about being patient for some world historical process to take place. No, if you want to be renewed, you have to be like Nightbird. You have to look lower. You have to look not to your highest aspirations, but to your greatest pains, your worst mistakes, your deepest fears, and all the parts of yourself and all the parts of the world around you that you don't want to face. And ask for the courage to go there. Because those are the places where God is meeting you. I had no idea in my life, vaguely, that I was going to go into ministry. 
until I was back at St. Ignatius working on the Benedict Joseph Labra ministry to the homeless. And, and uh, I watched somebody who lived on the streets, somebody who, by the way, I found out later, was set on fire by a group of teenagers while he slept. Watch that same man getting a bag of Doritos from a high school kid that only sort of wanted to be there. Saw that same man grab that kid's hands and then just look at the sky and thank God for Doritos. <laughs> he woke faith up in me in that moment. Everything that I do, there's a lot of places it comes from, but I remember John. I remember John's faith that felt the entire world being given to him in a bag of Doritos. So just go out this weekend and think about it. Where's your bathroom floor? Is it the church parking lot when you're about to go to your first meeting and you're, you're, you're quaking? Was your bathroom floor that difficult conversation when you had to fess up because you really disappointed someone? Is your bathroom floor every time someone asks you how you're doing and you've got to lie and say you're doing fine while you're choking back anxiety or despair or grief? Is your bathroom floor your bed where you're tossing and turning? You can't shut your mind off. You can't go to sleep. Is your bathroom floor that pain that just won't go away no matter how many specialists march in your room and pretend like they know stuff but they really don't or when you're sitting there in that hospital bed? Is that your bathroom floor? Is your bathroom floor the last door that got slammed in your face? Is your bathroom floor that, that trauma that sits in the back of your mind that chews on the edge of your consciousness, that trauma you keep reliving over and over again and you can't find peace or... Is your bathroom floor, sometimes when you're sitting in church and you're going, man, I don't know if any of this is true, <laughs> is your bathroom floor that place where you have seen or experienced terrible suffering and went, where the hell are you, God? Well, wherever that is, those are the places where God is waiting no, strike that, is dying, quite literally dying on a cross to meet you. That bathroom floor is renewal. Renewing yourself or being renewed is collapsing on that bathroom floor and meeting a God who bleeds with you and who tells you, I'm sad too. It's something you can't describe it's something that you can't aspire to. Renewal can only be experienced in that deep, sad, awful, low place where Christ meets you and says, all this, all this pain, all this suffering, all this awfulness, this is mine now too. And I will take it if it's what it means to be with you. Renewal is death and resurrection. We don't just make new resolutions or take our life in new directions. Renewal is not about fighting, which is the burden that everybody puts on a cancer patient. Oh, you're such a fighter. Right? Renewal is being done fighting because you know the one who is fighting for you. Renewal is every time you fall, being raised up in forgiveness and peace and healing and power with Christ. 
Now, lots of people will talk to you about letting go, but we've got a Savior who wants to up the ante. He meets us on that bathroom floor to take away sins, doubts, depressions, addictions, fears, pains, griefs, and anxieties, and eventually death itself. And when it's all over, he's going to be with you on that bathroom floor saying, come on, get up, and you'll have the power to do it. Now, our gospel lessons today talk about two people that met Jesus on that bathroom floor. Jairus fell on his knees to beg. A woman in what was considered in that tragically patriarchal society, let me emphasize that again, tragically patriarchal society, an irre- have, having possessed an irredeemable ritual impurity. She crawled through all of that, like a soldier in Vietnam crawling through the jungle. She crawled through a sea of people to grab Jesus by the hem of his robe. And for both of these people, Jesus refers not to his power, but to their faith. And note what their faith was. It wasn't reciting the catechism. It wasn't demonstrating how well they knew scripture or whether they had the right beliefs about the power relationships between Israel or the, or the Roman Empire or how well they had followed the law or how much they had really committed their hearts to Jesus. Right? You don't see Jesus going, do you really believe? Do you really want me to do this? Are you, are, are you really? Right? And, and how many church services do that? No. No. There was, theirs was a faith that was expressed 100% and it was expressed in desperation. Faith is having nowhere else to turn. Quote me on that. And faith, because not only did they look lower, their circumstances had brought them as low as they could go. And they found Jesus there. And man, what a sight we get of Jesus here. Now, pay attention to these stories. Pastoring, by the way, is really hard, and all of your jobs can be hard, too. But in my job, often I get an emergency call, right? And these emergency calls like to show up after 3 o'clock on a Friday when I'm getting ready to go out, when I'm getting geared up to, to be with my family. Marissa will, will tell you all about it. And every time I get an emergency call, it is so hard for me to, to, to stop and be present. And all of the, what I got to do, and man, I got a sermon this weekend, and, and everything. He's just going to get pushed back, right? But, man, I'm not as good as Jesus. Jesus wasn't thinking about what else he had to do, right? Jairus gets to Jesus and begs Jesus for his little girl to have life. And Jesus says, doesn't even say a word, just follows him, right? We would never say, like, I want Jesus to follow me in church, <laughs> right? It's the order wrong, but this is what happens in, this, in, the, in the story, Now, no God does this. No God in the ancient world would act without a a sacrifice or or maybe even a little hymn of praise. And some people in the New Testament, in the Gospels, they do say, well, Lord, only you can do this. You know, they they say these words, but Jairus doesn't, doesn't say anything other than, please come here and put your hands on my daughter. Jesus responds to Jairus like Noah and Abraham responded to God in Genesis. All we're told is that he just goes. And I think what happens is that he's so focused on Jairus and this little girl that he doesn't notice when a poor, sick woman comes up behind him and grabs his cloak, right? 
He's not paying attention to what's going on. Everything he has is just getting poured into the emergency in front of him. And we're told in the story that power goes forth from him. And I, an inveterate comic book reader, cannot help but think about what happens in comic books when superheroes get drained of their powers, right? Like uh, when, uh, when, when Batman will design these little gadgets with like kryptonite inside them just in case Superman goes rogue. Or speaking a rogue, right, from the, from the X-Men in the original movies. Did she make the reboots? They were so terrible I didn't even watch them all the way through, right? And rogue from the X-Men can, can put her hands on somebody and just take their powers. I, I think about stuff like that. But in this story, it's not about being overpowered. It's about being underpowered. When there's someone in need, and even and maybe even especially someone considered to be impure and outside the bonds of what society considered holiness, Jesus' power gets drained. His own decisions or faithfulness almost don't have anything to do with it. Jesus has come to the earth for the desperate and cast out so much that his power is always going out to him, sometimes without him even knowing it or choosing it. When people are desperate, Christ moves. When they suffer, Christ suffers too. So when we look lower, we've got to. There's no other place to find God because Christ's power is constantly going lower. This woman gives the first hint of the cross by approaching Christ in her weakness and making Jesus weaker by her contact. Now, we have gotten so busy as a church putting God on a pedestal, right? Whether it's the church itself or the nation or whatever else. And we wall off God behind mountains of rules and silly pieties. We're so busy doing this as a church. We miss out on this story, right? This woman in her desperation showed us a profound truth about God, which would eventually get revealed on the cross. When we are weak, God is weakened. When we feel pain, that's God's pain. God suffers. When we are low, God gets lower. I won't do the dance and break my hip. When we cry out in anger or despair or frustration, God shouts in the darkness with us. It was there in Scripture all along. God heard the cries of the Israelites in slavery. God wept in sadness for God's people in the voices of the prophets. God kept making promises to people in exile and in captivity. The story of Scripture is the story of power constantly going out and going forth from God all the time. And it's not in creating or sustaining the world that takes away energy, but because loving and being there for us is a lot of work. We take everything God has until there is nothing left, and then when there's nothing left, God gives that away too. We have to look lower, brothers and sisters. We just have no idea how far God will go. And by the way, it's good to know that God's there for us on the bathroom floor, but there are other people there too, 
They're trying to get their hands on Jesus. They need to hear this message. They may not know it. They may not even know Christ. Or if they do know Christ, they know him as, as just a nice guy. Some story people told them in their childhood or a, a figurehead in a fading religion with a mixed record when it comes to loving others. But there are people out there dealing with all sorts of challenges, struggles, illnesses, and burdens, and they are just groping around to get one hand on that cloak. And you know what? They have to wade through us. Imagine this poor woman had to just make her way through so many people, and most of all, at the end, She had to make her way through the disciples too. She had to trip over Peter and James and Andrew and Thaddeus and John, trip over one of the guys in the window right there, right? And when Jesus asked them, who touched me? They had no answer. They were clueless. That's not good. Because you know what? Jesus is going to keep asking us every day, who touched me? Who needed me? Who needed help paying a bill? Who needed a, who needed a hand being able to stay in their uh, location without getting evicted? Who needed a, a cup of coffee and an air-conditioned place to sit on Sunday morning? Who needed a good friend in one of you? Who needed a meal? Who needed to have a sense of their dignity restored? Who needed peace in the midst of an illness? Who needed someone to lean on? while they were in recovery? Who needed a word of forgiveness that was truly meant for them? All the time, Jesus is going to be asking this. If you want to give an answer, you can't be like the disciples and shrug your shoulders and say, I don't know, there's a lot of people in the world, Jesus. That's your business, right? What every one of you who have taken a trip to that font or have eaten from that table need to do is look lower because that's where Christ found you and where so many of your neighbors are clawing for a piece of his cloak. Amen.